Let me invite you to turn with me to the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 12. Uh, If you need a Bible, I believe there's some in the back there. Feel free to get up and get one if you'd like. Romans 12, uh, verses 1 through 8. Let's listen to God's holy and inerrant word. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed about the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, Each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. Or he who teaches, in his teaching. Or he who exhorts, in his exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let's ask God to lead us as we study his word. Father, we thank you that you haven't left us without guidance, but you've revealed your will to us through the word. Had you not spoken, Father, we'd be left to guess what you want, who you are, what you're like. Father, help us to hear this as your word and to apply it to our lives. Please grant us uh, that your Holy Spirit would, would work within us both to will and work for your good pleasure as you continue your work of transforming us in Christ. Amen. My son was stationed at Fort Carson in Colorado Springs, and I realized a lot of businesses gave military discounts like they do around here. So I created a website that listed all the military discounts in the area and would promote it at Fort Carson and was on, uh, on the base quite a bit, uh, promoting that and working with families. And... Uh, we used to have drawings on the website to try to get military families to come to the site so we'd have giveaways. And one time a business donated a night away for a military family. So we had a drawing and somebody named Pat Kelly's showed up. So I called up uh, Pat and, and, and said, I need to give you this gift. It's an, a night away for you and your family. And Pat said, well, I'm taking my daughter down to an ice cream shop in Colorado Springs. Why don't you meet us at the ice cream shop? So I met him down there, and it turned out it was Colonel Pat Kelly. And the group he commanded was the EOD, the Explosives Division. They would go to Iraq, and they would take all the strap-on bombs that were located, all the landmines, and detonate them, defuse them. It's one of the most dangerous jobs that you you had over there. And so... uh, I got to know Pat. He gave me his company coin and started inviting me to some of their company gatherings on, on post. But that day that I gave him the free, 
free night away, he looked at me and, and he said, last night a, a company came home from Iraq and some of the guys didn't make it back. And some of the families that came back, I know, he said, I know one family that really needs a night away together, so I'm going to give it to them. And my estimation of Colonel Kelly was up here. He and I are still friends today. So we didn't make it back. I had a chance to work for the Gazette newspaper in Colorado Springs for a while and manage their military website. And I would go to Fort Carson and take pictures of the troops as they returned home. All the families would gather in the gymnasium there, and all the soldiers would arrive on a bus out back at night. And as the families were waiting for their husbands or or, uh, fathers or mothers to come in, they would play games and all and and stand around, and all of a sudden, it would get quiet, and a smoke would go off, and the soldiers would come in through the smoke and line up in formation. And the uh, leader of the ceremony would have a brief ceremony, and families were waiting to be reunited as they endured the ceremony, and as soon as it was over, they would rush out and meet their husband, and you'd see the embraces and the tears, uh, babies that the parents had not seen as they'd been deployed in Iraq, but, but some, some men didn't make it home. When I was working in downtown Denver a few years later, I remember walking down the street one day and looking around at folks I was passing, and I think it's veterans today, and I was, I was wondering... A lot of men didn't make it home from Iraq. They gave their lives so that we would be free to live our lives. If I were a soldier faced with giving my life, what would I want to see happen as a result of my life being given? If I give my life so that you can live, what would I like to see you do with your life if I give mine? And you look around at all the varieties of people and you wonder, well, how will you use your freedom? In the passage before us, Paul begins by saying this, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. And you've heard it before. Anytime you see the word therefore in Scripture, you have to ask, what is it therefore? Because he's, he's following something he said and says, because of this, therefore, this is true. So therefore, I urge you by the mercies of God. Well, he spent the last 11 chapters dealing with the mercy of God. He began in chapter 1 giving us the theme of his letter where he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And then he be, a few verses after that, he says, For the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all wickedness and unrighteousness. And he talks about how although everything about God that's evident in nature can be known by man, men and women choose to ignore it and worship the works of their own hands and idols or just ignore that God's there. And so God has given mankind over to our own desires. And we do what we want to do. It can be sexual immorality, he begins with. Or it can be, he says, greed. It can be malice. It can be gossip, slander. He lists all these things in chapter 1 and says, this is what the wrath of God is, is shown toward mankind. He makes a case saying, God gave us the law to show us our sin and to drive us to Christ. And then he takes chapters 3, 4, and 5 to talk about 
God's grace that came. He says the righteousness of God has now been revealed apart from the law. We covered that last week. Chapter 5, he talked about our justification by faith alone. How God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Then he anticipates how people respond to that. Well, if, if we're righteous apart from the law, why keep, why keep it? Why not just do what you want to do? Especially in Romans 8.1, he says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Well, if there's no condemnation, <laughs> do what you want to do, have fun. And he says, oh, no. He said that the, the law expresses the holiness of God and drives us to Christ. And now that we're joined to Christ, in Romans 8, says we're being conformed to the very image of Christ. How can we go back and live in the sin we've been delivered from? God chose us and saved us for a purpose. And now His Spirit is working in us to conform us to the image of Christ. And he says in Corinthians, we're being transformed from glory to glory. Chapters 9 through 11, he talks about, well, how did the Jews fit into this picture? If God now saves Jews and Gentiles by faith alone, Jews for generations, for hundreds of years, kept the law. How, how did they fit into all this? He covers that and covers God's sovereignty and our salvation, how God chose us. And it's God's will to choose to love us. Nothing we did to earn it. He's God. He can do what he wants to do. And after taking 11 chapters to just iron out and display the mercy of God, he begins chapter 12 by saying, Therefore, in light of the mercy of God, Here's how it plays out in your life. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. It must have sounded strange to their ears, a living sacrifice, because the Jews for hundreds of years, every time they brought a sacrifice to the priest, what happened to it? It was killed. Because it was, the penalty for sin was paid are symbolized by the animal dying. It showed that God punished the sin by death. The soul that sins shall die. Something has to take our place. Of course, they pointed to Christ being the one who ultimately takes our place. Sacrifices died. Once you gave a sacrifice to a priest, you had no control over it. It was God's at that point. And now he says, we're to be sacrifices. We're not our own. We've been bought with a price. But we're living sacrifices. I begin the sermon talking about soldiers who died for us. Christ died for us in a far more important way. But if he sacrificed himself by dying, we're to sacrifice ourselves by living a living sacrifice. How can we live in a way that's worthy of what Christ has done for us? How do you sacrifice yourself by living? We'll talk about it as we go on in, into the chapter more, but it's basically in, you serve other people, just like someone served you by dying for you. Present yourself a living and holy sacrifice. The word for holy there is a Greek word, hagios. It means to be set apart. 
The Bible describes God as being the one who's ultimately holy. He's set apart from all creation. He's without sin. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's eternal, completely different than anything else in all of creation. He's set apart. And then the Bible talks about elements of the temple being holy because they're set apart for God's use. And then it talks about Christians being holy, set apart unto God. The word for saint is the word hagios, holy, derived from the same word, that we're set apart for God. We're called to be holy. Look with me for a couple of passages here. Look in 1 Timothy chapter 4. First Timothy 4, verses 7 through 10. He says in verse 7, But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It's interesting. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. The, the word that he uses there for discipline yourself is a word, I can't say it in Greek, gymnao. It's a word from which we get gymnasium from. So you picture Paul saying, go work out. And practice this righteousness. Now, when I hear the word discipline yourself for righteousness, what I thought in my young Christian life was to discipline myself means to stop doing the bad things. Avoid the gossip, the slander, the sexual sin. Avoid all these things. And then you're righteous. But I don't go to a gym to go on a diet and avoid things. I go to a gym to work out that which I'm trying to build. I work the muscles I'm trying to build. I run to try to strengthen my legs. I used to. So if you're disciplining yourself for the purpose of righteousness, there is a sense in which you avoid the things God says to avoid, put off the work of the flesh. He gives us a whole list of things to put off. But then he gives us a list of things to put on. And to discipline ourselves for the purpose of righteousness is to practice those things, to grow strong in them. Suppose disciplining yourself in righteousness means you love somebody when it's hard. You show kindness and you show compassion when your nature is against it. You stop and listen to somebody who needs to have a voice, needs somebody to listen. You, you give to somebody who's hurting You love somebody with the compassion you've received because they're going through what you went through last year. And you have something they need. You have a perspective. And your words aren't just platitudes because you've been there. You've done that. And they need to hear how God ministered to you and how God can minister to them. Discipline yourself for the purpose of righteousness. Exercise it. Grow strong in it. The other passage I wanted to show you is 1 Peter chapter 1. Turn over further in your Bible. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16. Again, he says, as obedient, let me start with, uh, we'll start with 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. 
Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Because it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Holiness is not an option for a Christian. It doesn't apply to just certain segments of our lives. Well, I'm, I'm holy in this area, but over here, I'm going to do what I want to do. No, we're called to be holy in every area of life. No exemptions. We're bought with a price. We belong to Christ. I love what he goes on to say, though. After saying that we are to be holy as he's holy, down in verse 22, he says, Now, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls, for what purpose? Purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. He says, now that you've put on holiness and you've laid aside the gossip and the hatred and the strife, now you're ready to start loving because you've taken away all the things that hinder that love and that distort it. So now that you've worked on holiness and you've disciplined yourself for righteousness, now let it play out in your life in the way you love people. Now you, now you can love them like God loves them instead of the way you used to. No longer for personal good. Now it's no longer just to be accepted. Now it's no longer because you'll get something out of it or because they're attractive or they have a position that you, you want to get close to. Now you love them because God loves them. And you love them in a way that you've never done before because your heart has been set free from all that distorted that love before. Back in Romans, chapter 12. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is a spiritual service of worship. And we come here on Sunday mornings to worship and give praise to God, but so much of our worship is what we do out in the world. Because the way we live brings glory to God. And it's how we love people, how we live our lives with integrity, how we show hope. Peter says, always be ready to give a reason for the hope within you. He expects us to live in such a way that we provoke questions in people's lives. How, how come he loves me like he does? How, how come she's that kind? How come she brought dinner over tonight to me? How, the way we love people provokes people to ask, why, why are you doing that? And you have the chance to give a reason. Well, because this is the way Jesus loves me. This service is serving, sacrificing by living is one of the ways we worship, spiritual service of worship. And then the next point, a renewed mind. Verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Don't be conformed. Do you realize how hard that is? <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds easy. Now, when I was in seminary, my professor of counseling was Paul Meyer, 
who was one of the co-founders of Minerith Meyer Clinic in Texas, some of you have heard of. This was his first year teaching after he got out of medical school. And uh, I remember one thing he said, especially. He said that a child's personality, 90% of a child's personality is formed. 90% is formed by the time they're six years old. The way they'll respond to life, the way they respond to people, their, some of their worldview, what they expect, what they think of themselves, is formed in those first six years by what they see and what they experience in their own life. The words of parents travel with you throughout your life, and you conform to what you see. Good or bad, you conform to it. When you get into school, and this is one of the arguments for charter schools or homeschools and alternatives, because when kids are around other kids, because we want to be accepted, we tend to conform to what we see. And if 10 people around us who are our friends believe something to be true, we tend to accept it. That's why we as parents need to train our children to think critically, think for themselves. Conformity. Do we do it as adults? I remember when, when Linda and I first got married, she was telling me that, uh, I forgot his name, but the father of modern culinary science, this is the way he said food should be done, and that's the way it should be done. And it's like, well, who made him the expert? <laughs> sure, he's a the major figure in the world on culinary, but how come they don't do it my way? I'm a southern boy. I like grits. So why is he the expert? Why do we conform to what anybody's view is? We do. We do. We do it all the time. But Paul says that there's a different way to live. Instead of being conformed to the world, be transformed. The word he uses there is the Greek word from which we get metamorphosis. Being transformed from inside out from a babe to a mature adult. Complete change, a complete makeover. Not just looking outwardly like the world, but being inwardly different. I think in a couple of ways. One of the ways is we have different building blocks. As we grow up, we always build a framework from which we see the world and judge the world. We assume certain things to be true, And everything we see, we put into that framework and judge it. We label things so we can have a handle on them. We evaluate events. We evaluate people based upon our past experience. It's unavoidable. We can't come at everything completely fresh and new. Otherwise, we'd be overwhelmed. So we categorize things. That's good. That's bad. I can trust him. I can't trust them. We have a framework that we view the world with. And sometimes that framework's not biblical. So he says, long for the pure milk of the word that you may grow with respect to salvation. The Bible challenges our worldview and helps us rebuild it in a way that we can't by ourselves. We renewed in our mind. Also, the, the way we put things together, the way people react with each other, the way they handle differences of opinion, and the way they, they handle what they see in the world. Do you have compassion on somebody? Or do you judge them? What, what do you do with these relationships? The process we go through 
needs to be informed biblically, not just the way we grew up. So he says, be transformed by renewing your mind. That means we as believers need to be immersed in Scripture. Paul writes, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We have to know the Scriptures and let that change the way we look at life, the way we look at people, the way we look at God. I think I shared in Sunday school one time, I was sharing the gospel with a couple in Sevierville. Uh, the young man was deaf, and so they asked me to come to their house and share the gospel with them. And as we were talking about the gospel, I mentioned that God's our Father, and the lady went berserk. She said, if God is a Father, I don't want anything to do with Him. So what? Why? And, and she said, when, when I was young, my father beat me with a, a metal chain. She said he was vicious. And if God is a father like that, just count me out. We had to go through and say that that was her worldview. That was the way she had seen fathers. And now you have to realize the Bible says God as a father is the opposite, the polar opposite of that. Fathers are not that way. But she had been so shaped by her experience. Some of us have been. We learn to evaluate ourselves by the way our parents treat us. And there's a point where you have to say, let's step back and say, how does God treat me? How does God see me? That's who I am. Not the way other people see me. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And it impresses me that immediately after saying, be transformed by renewing your mind, the next verse is saying, now here's how you think. Look at the next verse, verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. I would not have thought that renewing my mind means I change my opinion of myself and quit thinking I'm so important. Now, it doesn't say think less of yourself to the degree that I'm nothing, I have nothing to contribute. It doesn't say that. What he does say is don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but think so as to have sound judgment. So who are you? How do you fit into this ragtag group of people? He goes on to say that everybody here has a spiritual gift from God. God has placed you in this body of believers and in the worldwide body of believers for a reason. You have a part to play. God has given you something to do. God has given you, every one of us, a ministry. Notice how how he says this, for just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. And he goes on and says, if it's teaching, teach. If it's giving, give. If it's compassion, show compassion. <clears throat> I 
I'm very aware that anytime I teach, there's probably somebody here or several people here who, what I say just goes one ear and out the other. Also know that maybe for that person, somebody here might walk up to them after the service and say, hi, how are you doing today? And the person's, instead of having to listen to a sermon, they get to tell somebody how they're doing. And, and maybe you're the one that says, well, let me pray for you. Well, let, me, let me help. And in 30 seconds, you do more for that person than this sermon will ever do. Because God will use your gift of encouragement to speak to somebody's heart. We're to use our gifts with one another. And as we do that, where there's teaching, encouragement, whatever your gift is, the whole body benefits when you use it. Uh, I used to have a theme verse for my ministry in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 11, where Paul says that God gave pastors and teachers to the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. The pastor's job, Jeff's job, any pastor's job, is to equip you for the work of ministry. He's the pastor, you're the ministers. And he equips you to do what God's called you to do. So this morning, you have to ask yourself, what, what is God calling you to do? Because that also answers the question is, how do you sacrifice by living? Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. He goes on in verse 9, and we won't go much further, but about let your love be without hypocrisy. And he goes in again and about if, as you transform your mind, you use your gifts, it results in the way you love each other. When I was in Denver one time, I was walking down the street, and there was a street preacher down in the, the heart of the of district, 16th Street. And he was yelling at the top of his lungs and staring up at the sky, and there was a policeman standing nearby. And I walked over to the policeman and said, what, what you doing? And he said, oh, I got him here to protect that guy. <laughs> so he's making everybody mad because he was just yelling and looking up at the sky. So the, the obnoxious fellow that I am sometime, I, I walked up near him and started looking up at the sky too. And people around started looking up at the sky. <laughs> and uh, he finally looked at me and like, what, what are you doing? And I said, You know, remember the verse where Jesus said, love one another the way I've loved you. And by this, by this, all men will know you're my disciples. Have you thought about that? That's a pretty good witness. He looked up and started yelling again. <laughs> he dismissed me. Jesus sacrifice himself for us by dying. Mercy beyond our imagination. And the word to us this morning is now, how will you sacrifice your life by living? Let's pray. Father, I've learned through the years that any time I teach or preach, the first person that needs to hear the message is me because my life sure needs changing in so many ways. 
Father, help us to listen to your voice this morning. Help, just let it sink in to us. Help us this week to ask the kinds of questions that we need to ask ourselves constantly. Come before you and just to lay our lives before you. Ask what you want us to do with them. Who needs us? Where are you sending us? Next door? We're to, we're to bloom wherever we're planted. Work, neighborhoods, communities. Open our eyes, Father, to see your work for us. And then help us to do all things to your glory and to your praise. For we ask it in Christ's name and to his glory. Amen.